All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers, what the fuck buddies, what the fuck nuts? What's happening? How are we? How are we doing? How are you, they, he, she, it, thou? How is thou? What's happening? Today on the show, I talked to uh, Barry Jenkins. He's the director of Moonlight. He directed If Beale Street Could Talk. Uh, and he directed uh, Medicine for Melancholy. And his latest project is the limited series for Amazon Prime Video, The Underground Railroad, based on the Pulitzer Prize winning novel by Colson Whitehead. Heavy stuff, man. And uh, it just it's one of these pieces of art, a true cinematic achievement, uh, a monumental uh, piece of cinematic art, 10 episodes that could read as one long film and it blew my fucking mind. And I know that most of you aren't going to watch it because it is difficult. It is as horrific as it is beautiful. And those are the two sort of currents that run through it. Uh, There's one level of just pure horror, but you know in your heart that it's real. That, that the horror, although not depicting a particular historic truth uh, in terms of an event, these are historic truths in terms of actions. And alongside of that ongoing horror is the ongoing beauty of humanity, community, struggle, tenderness, love in, in, you know, in the shadow of ongoing horror. And that horror goes on today. It was one of these recent cathartic experiences that i had starting with pig the nicholas cage movie and on through all the uh sterling harjo films and then really sort of leaning into uh barry jenkins work you know obviously moonlight's amazing but uh this thing underground railroad spectacular and i was i was honored to talk to the guy and i you know and i hope i did it justice because i wanted to engage i had questions i was excited that being said, uh, I was—I just got back. I was in uh, Salt Lake City for uh, three days. I got in there Thursday. Uh, I spent most of Thursday. I landed in th- uh, Thursday morning. I spent most of Thursday walking from the gate to the parking lot. That fucking airport is like a, a strange joke. Not a bad airport, just kind of like, wow, how long is this hallway? Where do we get out? This isn't even that big a city. But as I've said before, and as I've, I told the people in Salt Lake, I, I will book Salt Lake. I'll go to Wise Guys, great club. Good guy runs the place, Keith Stubbs, one of the indie club owners. These guys who run their own shops, you know, it could go either way, historically. Uh, they could either be horrendous douchebags or monsters or they could be great guys who who run a good shop. And he's one of those guys. And oddly, as you get more successful, they all become better people. <laughs> but uh, I get I don't get nervous, but I book Salt Lake thinking that it's not a market for me. That like, you know, that I'm not going to do a theater in Salt Lake. So I'm going to work the shit out. I'll do five shows like a real road act and uh, and and lean in and figure some more shit out. 
But I sell tickets in Salt Lake, and I fucking love Salt Lake. It's a weird ass place, and it's you know I don't I, I know it's the Mormon frequency. I know it's the uh, the intensity of the Wild West American Jesus cult that was a uh, sort of a kind of built their world out there in the 1800s and there's some sort of uh no one i mean even after you learn about mormons and where they come from and who they are you're still like i don't know man it's still weird but every time i go there it doesn't feel like an evil weird it seems like the weirdness overwhelms there's not an evil thing it's just a weird thing it is a a theocratic city it, it is built out of the loins i guess of the elders of zion but uh but they're always nice people you never feel proselytizing i don't feel any hate when i'm there i always have a nice time there and they're always very nice people i don't you know and i i wish i could say something different but i can't it's a bizarre place and even before covid it's not you know there wasn't a lot of people around it's it always seems a little empty no one ever says that uh Salt Lake City is a bustling metropolis, but but I'll tell you, man, uh, great audiences, great audiences. But I didn't I didn't get to go see Space Jesus this time, which upset me. I always go visit the uh, the Temple Square when I'm there. I, I I feel like I have to. It's not even a tourist thing. I I find some peace among the Mormons. Yeah, so I didn't get to go to a Temple Square and uh, and see Space Jesus, the giant uh, statue of Jesus in front of like the space landscape, which I enjoy doing. I like walking around Temple Square. I like seeing the the tabernacle and uh, the the original church there. They've built uh, scaffolding around the temple. Uh, in Temple Square in uh, Salt Lake City, but I believe it's a launching pad. I think that, yeah, I don't know how one gets into the ship uh, or which ones are going up. If it's only the, um, you know, the underwear crew, I don't know, but it looks like a launching pad. And, uh, well, that would be interesting, wouldn't it? If, if the Mormons launched their temple into space and everybody in the world was like, they're the ones, they're the ones that are making the move. They're making the move to the new Zion. A Mormon planet, folks. A Mormon planet. They're getting out. Space Jesus is going to be installed on the top of the temple and it's going to shoot off like a ship if they can get through the smoke haze from half of my state burning. Because come on, you guys. You know, if you believe in God, you'll believe anything. And I don't mean that as insulting. I'm just meaning that if you believe in God and you've opened that door... You better be pretty fucking vigilant about what goes in and out. Seriously, you got to be extra vigilant. If you already believe the big bullshit, you got to watch out because a lot of little bullshit's going to sneak in there. And next thing you know, your soul is going to be filled with all kinds of bullshit beliefs and you're not going to know what's real. So I'm saying like, keep your God, just watch that door. Watch that fucking door. Barry Jenkins is uh, a true artist. An, an inspired artist and i really need to, to to set this up properly because i i imagine a lot of you haven't watched underground railroad or maybe you haven't made it through the first two episodes and you might not make it through at all but i do want to make it clear here we talk about underground railroad a lot and there's no regard for spoilers in this conversation and to be honest with you it doesn't matter that that the series is more of a kind of poem a visual poem both elevating and horrific 
and the journey of the narrative is it's important, but you're not watching it to see what happens. You're watching it to sort of be taken somewhere and and be sort of informed, educated, elevated, and horrified at the foundation of institutional racism being American slavery. So I wouldn't get too hung up on it. This is an important piece of art, and and I'm talking to the artist. So I want to be able to dive into his intentions and and talk about his vision. And uh, and I saw the whole show. So I'm going to engage with this. And I believe if you listen to this conversation, it will enrich your experience when you do see it, if you choose to watch it. And it's just, I just want to make it clear, it's not a matter of it being spoiled. It's about having a deeper understanding of why he did what he did and executed it the way he did. And it's not going to ruin it for you. But I do suggest you watch it. Uh, Underground Railroad is now streaming on Amazon Prime Video. And this is me talking to the director and writer of this 10-episode piece of art, Barry Jenkins. Have you ever eat that place, Bavel? Have you ever eaten down there? Yeah, yeah, I have. So fucking good. Yeah. I'm sorry, I just ate it. I just had leftovers from there. And I yeah. was like, it's one of those places, like, I don't know always how to uh, to sort of um, appreciate things in life. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and I had to force myself today to realize, like, that was one of the best fucking meals I ever had. It's a, it's a nice one that happens, man. <laughs> it's a nice one that happens. That's a good spot. Are you able to do it in uh, general? Or are you just, like, work-minded? I'm, I'm just, like, work-minded. But sometimes it hits me. I remember one time I used to yeah. live in the Bay Area. Yeah. I went to this fancy restaurant just for lunch. Which one? Myself. Uh, it was like one of the pizza joints, not Pisaola. It was like the sister restaurant, uh-huh. uh, the Boot and Shoe. Oh, okay, went to the Boot and Shoe. And yeah, just had a salad. Yeah, a fucking salad, Mark. Yeah, yeah. It was the best salad I'd ever had in my <laughs> yeah. life. And you remember it? I remember it. Yeah. Oh, it's, it, it was so damn good. Food and, is so and, good. and it snuck up on me. Yeah, you know? food it's is nice so when that good. So, like, I don't know, like, the whole story, but do you, where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Miami, Florida, born it's, and raised. Wow, man. I don't know what to do with Florida. Do you? Uh, I don't, and I'm from there, and I'm in, in a certain way, I'm very proud to to be from there. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't be talking to you if, right. if it wasn't for Florida State University, or I went to film school, and all the programs the state put into place, yeah. kids like me who grew up poor could actually go to college, yeah. and yet, hot damn, uh, it's wild, what right? a mess. It's yeah. sinking, it's full of weirdos. I, my mother's down there, and I, I've grown to appreciate it uh-huh. because of the, uh, you know, I, I guess diversity is a nice word for whatever the hell's happening there, mm-hmm. but there's like uh, so many people, so many freaks, and so much tension. So much tension, and, and there are certain areas of Florida that kind of are like the frontier, yeah. where people just go to get space and do whatever the fuck they want. Right. And more power to them. It's yeah. great to have a place where right. people can do that. But this thing, it's like, come on, man. Yeah, yeah, it's getting crazy. On, especially with the senior population that's down there. That's um, crazy. I, yeah. know, I, can't, I can't look at that guy anymore, that DeSantis. I can't look at him. Yeah. But uh, that aside, so, but do you find that Florida has defined... Outside of college, your childhood has defined your vision somehow? Uh, not my vision. I, I, I will say I think it's yeah. defined the way I see light. Yeah. Um, there was this cinematographer who passed away while I was in film school. Yeah. And me being a film nerd at the right. time, this guy named Con- Conrad Hall, 
Uh, great cinematographer. He shot a lot of films everybody's seen, yeah. including uh, I think he won the Oscar for uh, American Beauty cinematography. And uh, oh, yeah. I remember reading this article on him, an American cinematographer. He's this white guy, but he was from Fiji. Mm-hmm. And he always said the way he saw light was driven by how he saw light as a child, which was very bright, this uh-huh. very bright sort of like really uh, bursting sort of sunlight. And growing up in Florida, especially in Miami, it's the same thing. I mean, yeah. it's kind of like the most southernmost point you can be in the U.S. Yeah. And so it's a very particular way of seeing light. And I do think that affects the way um, I like my films. Well, I mean, I I find that like in watching all the films, I got to be honest with you, man. I mean, because I had a like some sort of event happen over the last couple of weeks. I, I watched all of uh, Underground Railroad mm. from the beginning. Thank you. And I'm, you know, just a white dude, a middle-aged white dude, you know, trying to uh, understand and do the right thing. But I don't know that, you know, from the, uh, you know, within a t- 10 minutes mm-hmm. of that uh, film, which it seems like it's all one big movie in mm-hmm. a way. Mm-hmm. Is it? Uh, no, I think it's a TV show. But, uh, you do? But, but I don't I don't correct people when they call it a film. I think I see it as a compliment in a certain way. Well, I, it just seems like it, it just the process of it, mm-hmm. all of it. I mean, it's not I obviously they they operate each episode separately, but mm-hmm. it, it all is moving towards something. It is. It is. And, it's and all it a piece. Right. And it does not feel like like a TV series like you're you're going like I wonder what's going to happen next. Mhm. <laughs> you no, know I what agree. I mean? Like, I agree. All right. So but uh, nothing somehow the 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 way that you film things and your sense of of composition, color, tension, all of it. Mm. I don't know that I'd ever been able to experience a a painful human empathy. Mm. For the for the struggle of slavery, mm. like I understand it, I feel bad, but mm-hmm. the, it, it created something tangible in me mm. where I was like, "Oh my god!" Mm. You know, all the way through that, the undercurrent of how you're depicting the violence, uh, the the brutality, and just the 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 abuse on every level, mm. really sort of somehow or another made it real, fresh, mm. human, and and horrendous. Mm. Uh, I, I don't know if that's a, a compliment, but I do want to say it is thank a you. <laughs> uh, I, I have heard that some people can't get through the first hour of the show. And uh, that's interesting to me because I, I think back on my ancestors and I go, well, I, I wonder what it must have been like for them to get through the first hour of their lives. Because yeah. this was, the, this was the, the, the beginning, middle, and end of their lives we lived underneath uh, this tyranny, this experience. Yeah. So. If you can't watch more than an hour of the show, put some respect on my ancestors' names, uh, as the kids say. Yeah. Um, but I think what you were talking about was kind of like the point for the group of us who made the show, yeah. which was it wasn't about presenting the spectacle of the condition of American slavery, which mm-hmm. is something that I think has been done very well right. um, and, and for very pointed reasons in other works on the subject in the past. I think we wanted to present an experience that was in some way, because nothing can approximate what it must have been like to have been my ancestors. Right. But still, to bear witness yes. to what it must have been like to have been my ex- ancestors, and to do so in a way that you could understand the struggle they endured, the things they withstood, and, I like to say, the things they did. Yeah. The things they did, um, the creations they made, and the families they protected and fostered, so that I could sit here and have this conversation with you, bruh. Yeah. 
with you. Well, that was the balance, right? Mm-hmm. So, because I mean, I knew I didn't read the book, mm-hmm. and so you know, it appeared to me fairly quickly to 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 sort of unfold as an allegory of some kind, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and you know, I could I could understand that all the way through that there were there were launching points from historical fact, mm-hmm. uh, and those were were fictionalized to affect some mm-hmm. of them, mm-hmm. and and then the the idea of. The railroad being a real railroad, mm-hmm. sort of like uh, this morning I'm hiking and I realize like it is sort of a a purgatory, mm. and, then, and then you only get out and you're in hell again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like there's, <laughs> yeah, and, and it's interesting that you mentioned you threw the word fact out, and this, this idea of fact and fiction is something that that I've been talking yeah. about a lot, especially with the author Colson Whitehead, who's a really really smart cat, yeah, you know, Harvard educated, mm-hmm. two time Pulitzer Prize winner. You know, he's a very smart individual, but he talks about the difference between fact, fiction, and truth, and some of these facts that we've been given, yeah, you know, we've been given by the people in power. You know, I think there was an article that came out about uh, two months ago about this textbook that was still being used in, I want to say, Louisiana or Mississippi, somewhere uh-huh. in that region, where the textbook was telling kids, high school students, that the American slave trade was a system of conscripted labor. You know, really? That they, it was being framed in this way. And I thought about that and I realized, oh, if I had only read the novels, the fiction of Toni Morrison as a high school student, I would have gotten closer to the truth of right. my experience than reading this fact-based textbook. And so I think this idea of fact and fiction, that's one thing, but I think we should really be talking about truth to a certain degree. And I think mm-hmm. that what Colson does by, as you said, taking these events that, that did happen, but sort of ha- having them happen out of sequence mm-hmm. and tied to this huge allegory of this train running underground – He's allowing us to get at a certain level of truth that wouldn't be possible otherwise. So, and when you approach that cinematically, I mean, you had to make you know uh, uh, decisions for the entire ten episodes mm-hmm. that we're going to carry all the way through. Like, and you're so aware. Some decisions, but man, uh, the yeah. beauty. And, and uh, you know, I'm going to double back on myself. You yeah. Refer to it as a film. I think the process of making it, maybe it did feel like a film to a certain degree, uh, because in the process of making it, so many of these choices they kind of happened organically where I would be working on set with the actors and the crew, certain things would happen. Yeah. And I realized, oh, that's not in the book and it's not in the script, but it's something that I feel like we have to do. Like what? Oh my God, so many things. Like impro- it was happening in an improvisation or just kind of kept going in a moment? Some of it happened in, in improvisation. Some of it, the thought just popped up and some of it was just like um, being a termite and seizing the moment. You know, uh, one of those things was one of the biggest ones. Have you seen the whole show? The okra seeds that she carries from beginning to end uh, isn't really in the book. Not that pointedly that it's okra. Uh, She has the plot, but she doesn't plant the seeds at the very end of the story. Uh That was an invention because the prop master on the show came into my office and showed me a dried pod of okra seeds. Yeah. And he said, Barry, do you know what this is? And I go, yeah, it's okra, but it looks dead. He goes, no, no, no. He opens the the pod and all these seeds drop on my desk. Yeah. And he picks one up and he goes, no matter how dry it gets, if you plant this, it will grow. And he just walked out. <laughs> and I grew up eating okra. I know it's this uh, this vegetable, yeah. the seed that comes from the continent of Africa. Uh-huh. The enslaved brought it with them. It was this form of sustenance. And so I have this thing, this legacy. Yeah. And I go, oh, shit, I got to write that in. Wow. And there were so many things like that that happened. And it was such a, uh, a grounding point. Such a grounding point. And, yeah. and that was the thing with dealing with magical realism, but also dealing with a subject that is rooted in some truthful depiction of history. I had to be very careful about, I had this mantra, nobody's going to levitate in this show. 
Good. And there are going to be trains running underground, but they're going to be real fucking trains. Right. There's not a single CGI train in the whole show. It's real trains. We built tunnels above ground, above train tracks, and drove actual trains through them. And so where are these very grounded elements that I can turn into um, a sort of magic? Not the kind of magic that's hocus pocus. Mm -hmm. The kind of magic that, and I sound like a fucking sap, but the kind of magic that someone just putting faith in an object that has meaning to them and then it fortifying them through this journey. And that's what the ochre seeds were. Right. But it it sort of reads like, you know, they're through that theme or or having that that, that prop or that piece of magic. Mm You know, a lot of these things tend to, to, to sort of manifest as, as almost, you know, folklore, mm-hmm. as almost like like stories mm-hmm. that could be told that are ambiguous, right? It was one of those things where when I first picked up the book, uh-huh. I, I wanted to understand, you know, how and why does this woman leave her child uh, behind? Yeah. And it was clear that it was the world. The world was just too damn much. Right. Um, because growing up, especially my own personal story, you know, I grew up uh, with a mother who um, was not there in the home and mm. was dealing with so many different, uh, very difficult things. And I never understood why yeah. until I was in my, my 20s. And there were certain certain conditions uh, in her world, in her life, that led to, I think, a very similar kind of um, psychological or psychotic break that led her to this uh, this, this this choice. Um, to... To, to, to abandon me to, to a certain degree. Um, and so it was really important to me to build this world because I didn't want the episode to be punitive towards the mother, towards uh, Mabel, towards Cora's mother. And yet I wanted to really present uh, this world that these black women, um, both Cora and Mabel, are forced uh, to endure. And while Cora has the strength to get through it, you know, Mabel, um, unfortunately, does not. But that redemption doesn't come till the, like, the last episode. True. I know. I know. I know. I make you wait for it. <laughs> yeah, but in in your own life, though, like, you know, what? How did that? Did an anger manifest in you through your life? N- not an anger. No, I've just never been. Um, I guess an angry person. Really? Uh, I, I just haven't haven't ever been. Uh, one, there's too much in the present moment to deal with. Yeah. Um, to have that energy uh-huh. towards this almost fictive thing, because for a while my mother just wasn't uh, wasn't there. Also, too, something uh, instinctively in me just knew not to blame her. And so, no, I, I wasn't angry. There were times where I'd be in certain situations where I would realize other people had certain things in their life that I didn't have in my life. Um, and yet I didn't feel bitter towards those people. Huh. I just had to find a way to uh, fill in those blanks. Do you think that the the idea of not blaming me? Because somebody must have been there to 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 give you support and love mm-hmm. in order for you to to not have a need in your heart to blame mm. right uh, to, to a certain degree yeah i mean but also i was just a weird dude man <laughs> i was just a weird dude and um and and i i was i've always been fortunate to have people in my life, you know, whether it be, you know, my older sister, who's uh-huh. exactly 10 years older than me. 10, um, that's a lot. Who also yeah. went through a very similar uh, experience of growing up, but also these teachers and these coaches. Yeah. That's why, right. you know, when I'm on a set, I'm kind of like a football coach to a yeah. certain degree because uh-huh. those were the father figures that I, that I grew up with. Um, but yeah, there were. I, I didn't raise myself, a- absolutely. Why? Because I think that, that's, that speaks to, like, you know, what is sort of amazing about the balance you're you're kind of keeping mm. in in all 10 episodes mm. that the the only counterpoint to the brutality and the 
hopelessness is you know a sense of tenderness and and love and and you, you don't even I don't even think you lean on faith that much. Mm. It really is about some sort of like you know PTSD sort of acceptance of what is happening, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but also this sort of need for community and the idea that they'll survive. Yeah, I, I agree with that, and I do have faith in some some just. Some innate goodness in humanity, despite sure. all the evidence. But I mean, in the, the in the film, mm-hmm. it, it it didn't seem to be. It wasn't. It's not a Jesus trip. I mean, it's in there, mm-hmm. but it really was more about the the poetry of compassion. Somehow, I agree. I, I think also too, it's not a, a nihilistic um, a depiction of this era or this time period or these characters. Mm. Um, and I think sometimes it's hard to process because some of the imagery does not shy away from the nihilism of the time. So I think that dichotomy you're talking of, that balance, mm. man, it was fucking difficult. Man. Man. Yeah. It was really difficult to strike. And there were moments where, you know, I had to make almost like three versions of the scene in my head as I was making it. You know, mm. there was the version that just allowed the darkness to just completely overtake and overrun uh, the work that we were doing. And then there was the version that tried to curb the darkness so much that it was almost like an anesthetized version of the story we were telling. And we always had to find a way to really just shoot down the middle and be very truthful about the story we were telling yeah. and be mindful of these things. But this is what the story demands because it's the experience of the character. It's interesting because the nihilism is more in that slave hunter character. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, the guy with the agenda that and that sort of repetition, oh, I found very effective and 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 made me... It really brought some things together for me, uh, that along with some other films I've seen lately uh, that were not uh, black films, but mm-hmm. just in terms of of the human uh, spirit in a way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But that character, his name's... I for, always uh, Ridgeway. Ridgeway. Yeah, Ridgeway. And the actor is the Australian guy. What's his name again? Joel Edgerton. Yeah, great Joel Ed- great, Great actor. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm like, I don't have anything right in front of me. And I'm bad with names because I'm, I don't know, I'm getting old. But... <laughs> But that nihilism, once you track that guy's story, you know, that it is, it, it is a simple sort of emotional issue mm-hmm. that made this monster mm-hmm. and that he was irre- he, irretrievable in, in terms of what he could do for himself. Mm-hmm. Could not self-correct. It could not self-correct. Didn't want to self-correct. If, if anything, was bitterly doubling down you right. know, on, on that, the And how, on how the nihilistic animals. is that? Um, it's uh, it's abhorrent, you know, and I think uh, Joel does a great job with it. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned the repetition. Repetition was important to me, and I'm sure Joel at a certain point was like, "Why am I saying the same?" The shit? manifest destiny. The thing. manifest destiny. Important. Um, and, and part of this, exactly. Part of this was the entire five year process of making this. Yeah. What was I hearing over and over again? Make America great again. Over and over and over and over again. I'm like, where's this coming from? Hmm. Where's this been seen? Yes. It's like, oh, here's this mantra, this this imperialism, this manifest, this quest to just devour and conquer and vanquish everything not like me. And so, yeah, it, it was important. It was also important to have this flashback episode, which is touched on in the book, but not as fleshed out uh, as we have in the series, to really explore. How does this person become this way? Yeah. Like, what the hell is it? And was there anything anyone could have done to have corrected it? I think maybe there was. And so it's, it's, it's tricky. You know, I was t- I've been talking about 
January 6th uh, recently. Because, again, we're talking about fact and fiction. Yeah. I was on the mix stage for this show. I remember because we were mixing the show, I was somebody turned their laptop around. I could just see the images. I couldn't hear anything. Yeah. In that moment, I know what I'm seeing. This is a fact. This yeah. is what I'm seeing. Yes. We're still debating that fact. But this is what is happening, Mark. It's insane to me that we are de- this thing that everyone has seen. Right. We are debating what is this? Well, well, it's that's, very clear what this is. But but that's because we're we're up against a a, a fairly shameless and 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 out in the open fascist movement. Hmm. Right? That you know what we're up against in in terms of propaganda and what's being sort of uh, reprocessed as like it wasn't that bad, like you know everything gets very far into the past very quickly, but all I see is a fairly organized push on behalf of the GOP and factions within it mm-hmm. to to create minority rule that will last. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I, and I just think there's no other way to talk about it. We have a fascism problem. Yeah, it's interesting. You're right. There's no other way to talk about <laughs> it. But but what, what, what I'm always trying... I just... I grew up and yeah. you grew up too in a yeah. time before, before there was a way we could all look and see the same thing in the same moment. You know, whether it's the internet or live streaming, things it like that. It was better with three networks. It, it, I mean, it, it might have been. <laughs> it might have been only because I've been thinking about the cats that, that made uh, the internet and, and all those internet entrepreneurs yeah. who, who for a certain time were quite arrogant. And yeah. I think maybe now we're still quite arrogant. And I was like, why were they so arrogant? I was like, oh, they just assumed we've built this thing that has democratized information. Right. And so now everyone, everyone's going to have access to everything. And so you can't tell someone something's blue when it's red because everyone can look it up on the internet and see that it's red. Right. It's like, no, that's yeah. not what happened. That's not what happened. No. That is not what, what happened. What happened is, is that there's no sense of history and, and there's no way to judge fact against fiction. And this is why in this show, yeah. I'm trying to get away from fact or fiction yeah. and just speak towards truth. I was watching Reservation Dogs, uh, the yeah. first two episodes last night. It's pretty wonderful. It's man. great. And I'm really proud of that cat. I remember way back in the day, my first feature I made in 2008, and he had a feature that was going around the circuit at the same time. That's how I got to know him a little bit. Seeing him make that show, it's just the fulfillment of so much promise of, of the kind of stories he's always wanted to tell. I think it is important that whether it's fact or fiction, that us folks, you know, that we can speak to our own truths now. And I think with the show... Yes, the first episode is a, a little bit hard, yet there's nothing untruthful about it. Because I've done the research, Mark, and there is shit way worse. Oh, yeah, man. I way remember worse. like that. The, the the one scene that I can never unsee mm. from uh, 12 Years a Slave mm-hmm. was when they were knocking that guy's teeth out mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to force feed him. Mm-hmm. Do you remember? Mm-hmm. Like and I'm just sort of like you know that's real mm-hmm. and 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 it's you know you just your whole brain goes like the pain and then the infection and then like that you know but this is what this is where and it's interesting because I don't want my whole life as an artist to be about this yeah to be about uh, addressing this thing that we're talking about now but anytime I hear someone say make America great again yeah. I think about scenes like that I think about when was it great then. Is that what we want to return to? Mm. Because we still have not atoned for that. Mm. So how can we ever be great until we atone for that? Mm. And if that thing is out of sight, out of mind, how will we ever atone for it? And I think there is a responsibility, man, that's a heavy as word, um, to when we have the opportunity. And I had this, this movie that won all these awards. What could I do with it? Well, this is my time to speak my truth because five years from now, I probably won't have the ability to. So you, this was like the capital that you uh, used from Moonlight. 
Oh, undoubtedly. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the the show as uh, I think you know as uh, as much uh, gravitas as it has, as much veracity as it has, is still a really big budget production. You oh know? yeah. Um, and I think that to make it at this level. Uh, require it cashing in on that capital, as you say, but it was worth it. I yeah, mean, I could have gone off and done something else. Could have made a little more money, Mark, but uh, but this was the thing I had to do. Well, no, but I I think that it seems like throughout, like at least the features that you've done, mm-hmm. that you know, it, it seems like the first two, you know, including Moonlight, that you were sort of. They were part of your personal journey mm-hmm. that you were resolving things that that, you know, you were experiencing in terms of defining who you are. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, undoubtedly. Because I may, I know Wyatt, you know, I go back with Wyatt. I heard him on the episode. I heard him on the show. He's, yeah. You know, he's intense. He's an intense guy. He is an intense guy. But that movie was, you know, very specific. It felt to me that Medicine for Melancholy was a guy, you know, a young black man in a situation socially and culturally where it was sort of like, how do I fit in here? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And did and did you feel like by doing that film that you got some closure on that? I did feel like I got some closure on that. I think it's why the next film was about, okay, well, shit, where are you from? Like, who are you really? Um, right. So, the, so Medicine for Melancholy was sort of like a... Uh, uh, you, you've you've uh, 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 you've explained the surface. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I, I would agree. And, and it was the surface of where I was at that point. I graduated from college and kind of just like bopped around. You know, I didn't really have any plans or have any goals. And uh, I met not a girl. Not even making movies. Not even making movies, oh. man. I was uh, I was in love with this woman and yeah. like truly in love with this woman. And through her, I fell in love with the city. Uh, and then when that um, all sort of fell away, yeah. Um, it was like, well, what do you want to do? In, so in San Francisco. In San Francisco. So you hadn't yeah. gone to film school yet. I had gone to film school, but I was like six years removed from film school. I'd spent two years in LA and didn't enjoy Before that. Before San Francisco? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was here, man. I, I had a I was very privileged. I worked on a movie starring Halle Berry. I was the director's assistant. Which movie? It's called Their Eyes Are Watching God. It was an adaptation of a Zora Neale Hurston novel. Um, my cinematographer now, this guy James Laxton, his mom knew somebody who was working on that film. Yeah. And said, if got you, you gig? if you come, now, not not got me the gig, but got me in the door. Right. Uh, so, so maybe it's a little bit of nepotism. Yeah. Uh, but she said, if you come here, and I graduated December 14th. Yeah. If you're here over the Christmas holiday, nobody else will be here. I can maybe get you an interview. With the director. Exactly. Who was it? It was Darnell Martin, this yeah. really awesome director. And so I got my ass on a plane and I came to LA and I slept on a couch for Christmas and New Year's by yeah. myself. Yeah. Uh, but I got the interview. Yeah. And it was myself and uh, I think like five other people. Uh, and I got the gig. Yeah. I got the gig. And so my first year was watching a big ass Hollywood feature come together. And then my second year, I worked um, in development. I was an assistant at Harpo Films uh, at Miss Winfrey's company. Those yeah. were my first two years. Now, what what did you learn on that? Because, like, a, as somebody who I did my own show that, you know, and I, I didn't know how a lot of things worked. So, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I imagine whatever film school taught you was not what you learned that year. It was not what I learned that year. But I will say, Darnell Martin, who uh, is this, uh, this, this woman from uh, New York City. Yeah. Uh, she came up with NYU. She was an AC and wrote the script called uh, I Like It Like That, made her first film. 
uh, really awesome woman. And she had this mission every time she did a film. She did the pilot for Oz. She did a couple other movies in the prison song. Uh, she said whenever she had a film, yeah. she wanted to have her assistant be someone from a disadvantaged background right. or some right. sort of like at-risk youth. And so I was the next in line, I think because of where I was from. Um, yeah, I got, again, I got this gig. Miami. Yeah, and yeah. she and she was just really diligent about, if you're going to take this job, you got to learn something. So I was in every meeting. I was in every rehearsal. I was next to her every second of, so, of, of that shoot. And so I got to see everything. So that's post. essential. It was essential. It was it was like a second film school. But yeah. It was like a real ass film school. But I will say, I realized right away, oh, I don't want to do that. Like I can't do that. I, I I can't I can't make this work. The directing, uh, the, the directing and that system. Oh, you know? okay. Because because I, I saw and it was still having looking back on it, it was a pretty wonderful process. Yeah. Uh, for Darnell, but I realized I couldn't do that not yet to be beholden to producers and then to just the whole thing and also oh, and and that's that's one big. element of it, but also being on a set. Yeah. And there are hundreds of people. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There are movie stars. Right. There are movie star producers. Right. You know? Just so many things. Yeah. There were things uh, that we... I'm going to stop myself there. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a Darnell story and not mine. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but she, uh, she, she, she put up with a lot. You know, she carried a lot. Yeah. I was like, oh, I can't shoulder what she's shouldering. Not right now. You weren't ready. I wasn't ready. Yeah. So after two years in LA, you're like, I got it. You yeah. know what, man? I was, I was, I was young and dumb. But thinking back on it, uh, I'm very proud of myself because I was working at Harpo Films. Miss yeah. Winfrey is really good to her employees. I had a 401k for the first time in my life. I had no idea what the hell that was, but somebody told me, yeah. you can cash that out early if you want. Right. You take like a 40, 50% tax hit, but you can cash it out. And I think in like a year and a half, I'd accrued oh, yeah. like 10 or 12 grand in there. Yeah. And I had always fantasized about, you know, white kids graduate, not white kids, kids of kids of means graduate. Yeah. College, they go to backpacking in Europe. Yeah. It's like, oh, well, I can't do that. But, uh, <laughs> but I, I like trains. I'll backpack around the US. Yeah. So I cashed in my 401k. And uh, I just bought train tickets uh, around the country. And uh, the first stop was in San Francisco. I was there for about three months, met this young woman, and then I just kept going. I just yeah. took trains. With her? Uh, no, no. She uh, she had a real life she had to leave. Isn't it interesting about trains? <laughs> yeah. Where, where, like, you know, where, because uh, I've taken trains. So, you know, mm -hmm. I had a romantic idea about it. I took one uh, almost all the way across country. But it's weird that the, the areas they drive through, when people say the other side of the tracks, that's what you see. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it's what you see. And, yeah. and also when you're on, because, you know, you go from uh, from San Francisco to New York. Yeah. You cut through Chicago. Oh, that's that's a long ass trip. Long. Do you get a sweeper car? You did that whole thing? Hell no. Oh. I was trying to make the money stretch, bro. Oh. So, no, I didn't have to sleep. I slept upright in that little oh. chair. Oh. And then I go to the viewing car during that's the day. Nice. Yeah. And you actually... I didn't realize it back then because the lines weren't as as finely delineated back yeah. then. But it was it was probably someone who's anti-vax, probably someone who sure. thinks January sixth meant this thing and not that thing. Yeah, you're sitting right next to them. Of there's course, nothing to do but talk. And it was a really it was, it was a really wonderful experience, man. And I got a lot of things that I had in my head. I got them out of my head. Well, I think that like in 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 speaking to that, you know, in speaking to how people handle information they put in their head versus mm -hmm. what their life really is, because mm. I think that whatever you learned over time, that in Underground Railroad, even with Edgerton's character, the slave hunter, mm -hmm. that you you I wouldn't say that you made him an empathetic character, but you made him human. Yeah, I, I agree, and, and and my job, and and Joel was really good about this too. Um, you know, he his first thing out of his mouth was. 
I know Barry. I don't want to redeem this character. That's not what, that's not what I'm here for. Yeah. I know that's not what you're here for. And this idea of empathy for the character, even that was a very fine line. Yep. But he's a human being. And also, too, I thought, I'm not afraid to show that he's a human being. I think it's almost imperative to show that he's a human being. That way people don't go, I'm a human, that's a monster. That thing is over there, and I'm over here. No, like, oh, no, 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 no. And by the time you get the backstory, you're like, nah. you know, you can't. It, it, it is a, some kind of empathy, but you, but because you're like, oh, well, you, you know, when you really realize that these emotional, that most of this political fury mm-hmm. and misdirected anger, mm-hmm. and 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 even racism to in some cases is 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 because they're emotionally crippled mm-hmm. because of legacy. Mm-hmm. Right, that that you know, it's hard not to be empathetic. You don't you don't want to redeem the guy. Well, it's interesting, man, because when you really trip back deep, deep back through, yeah. you go back to the colonies and how even the very beginning. Now I'm talking about the colonists fighting off the British. Yeah, you know, and this idea of legacy and where that comes from. You know, is there always going to be this perpetual chip? Mm. You know, on on the shoulder of of, of true. I'm using air quotes yeah. now of yeah. true uh, Americans. Right, right, right. And is that thing going to create this situation where there's always this very dark sort of like pit? You know, at the core of whatever the American ideal is, because at some point, you know, I don't know what purity there is in something that's driven so much by this darkness, this bitterness, this anger. But that's kind of at the root. To right. a certain degree, if right. you really trip down, we're not right. here to uh, make a history lesson, but yeah. if you really trip down into it, it kind of gets a little, a little muddled. You know? Yeah, it gets yeah, a little muddy. Well, yeah, and 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 yeah, I've just started to sort of feel that there, there. You know, some days I don't necessarily have hope, mm-hmm. but I, I have, you know, some sense that you know maybe. Uh, the truth can prevail, mm. but most days uh, I'm sort of like I've, we're fucked. <laughs> you know that, that's the hard thing with with making the yeah. show. You kind of go into uh, some really dark places. And, and you're kinda, I saw it. Yeah, and, and you're and you're kind of <laughs> yeah. you're kind of just like you're engulfed in this darkness because it's 116 days over I don't know like six or seven months, and every day you get there and you know you have to reach out and touch something very dark. You know, now you're touching it for a reason. You're trying to excavate it and hopefully show in some way like what it truly is, how it comes to be. And maybe that can unlock. If I can see it, if I can see it, then at least in acknowledging it, there's got to be some way I can address it. That's the hope, well, I guess. Right. No. Well, I mean, I think that there's there's a lot of hope in in the sense of, of survival, mm-hmm. family, compassion. Oh, yeah. in the show? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. For the listeners, I do think there is hope in the show. Oh, no. <laughs> this is for you, personally. <laughs> I would say for me personally, yeah. Well, yeah. What, what, how often did did the cast have to take a breath? Um, because of the of what was happening, not too often. Oh, really? Not, not too often. I mean, there were there were very one. There are some some things I didn't know about. You know, Tuso actually admitted to me the other day. There's just what I thought was a very simple scene um, in the next to last episode. You know, after she's walking down the street after the big action sequence, her lover is shot in the back, and then Ridgeway picks her up off the ground, and he's dragging her back to the wagon yeah i didn't realize it but Tuso admitted to me we were doing a q a recently and she said yeah i had to go to the therapist after that scene and because i had to have her help me come back to myself and get away from the character and this is maybe like 75 days in 
And so well, that's a, that, that that's relentless. You know, because at some point you're like, is anything going to turn? And you realize historically, no. <laughs> no, no, no. You haven't read the book. Yeah. And in the book, it's even more relentless. It's even more relentless. Yeah. The, the little girl's not there for her to go back to. Mm. And she doesn't get to stand over him, mm. you know, and pop, 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 and right. squeeze a few shots at him. I feel like I needed that catharsis. Sure. <laughs> and I felt like the <laughs> yeah. audience needed that catharsis as well. Yeah. Um, but you're right. It, it is relentless. Um, and it was relentless. You know, it was relentless. Um, and it yet, still is relentless. It still is. But But I will say, though, the fact that I am yeah. here. No, I get it. Yeah, yeah, that for I sure. I am sitting right. here. And that there is now a cultural conversation. It's a cultural conversation. And I got to harness all these tools um, to recreate the image of my ancestors. There's something very hopeful in that. I can tell you this, having read the testimonies of these people, you yeah. know, of the real life people these characters in some ways are based on. Yeah. The idea of me creating this thing, of us, myself and these actors and this crew, creating this thing it would just be i just can't even imagine there were times where i tried to imagine it was too overwhelming uh, oh to at the beginning it. to when you were taking on the task exactly well i mean it, it's well it, it seems to me that the jump from the first film mm-hmm. Mel- medicine for melancholy and 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 moonlight like it seemed like there was a tremendous education that happened in between those two and there was seemed to be a lot of years there were a lot of years a lot of years. The, the education, not so much. I think I, 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 I grew to the degree that I understood what it was I wanted to do. I think you, you've, you've picked at it, man, and nobody's picked at it in that way. <laughs> you know, I, I love my first film. I do. But there is something surface about it as far as, as it relates to me mm. as a person. Whereas once you get to Moonlight, yeah. it is deep down in the pit of my stomach. Like, there is nowhere to hide. Um, and so I think Moonlight, uh, medicine is more intellectual, yeah. whereas Moonlight is like from the gut. And you made choices around how to shoot in, in that way. And it seems that from the beginning mm-hmm. that, you know, you are a, a filmic thinker, that, mm-hmm. you know, that whatever your relationship is with your cinematographer, mm-hmm. it, it seems to be of the essence of how, you know, of of what you are as an auteur, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and I also think too, um, especially with this with this one talking about the show, yeah. the book already exists. Yeah. We want a fucking Pulitzer. You know, and yeah, so, so as as far as material was there. Exactly. Well <laughs> but I mean as far as words go, it's yeah. been maxed out. But now I have the sun, you know, I have the earth, I have the light, I have all these people embodying these these expressions. This is going to create a whole different thing. A whole new level of experience. You know, it should elevate what's on the page. It's, it's, it should sublimate the feelings that are on the page. And so I think when we get out there in the field, and you're right, we approach Moonlight the same way. We don't have a lot of time. We don't have a lot of tools. But hot damn, what is here that is truly, truly, uh, you weren't using the word, but the word that came to my mouth was pungent. Mm-hmm. You were talking about going to B- Bavel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you were yeah. saying how you That's had right. this meal. Yeah. And just the way you were describing it and the look on your face, it was like, that shit was pungent. Yeah, yeah. Like every flavor was in the yeah. back of Mark's jaws, yeah. just like lighting up yeah. every muscle. And when we were making Moonlight, we were like, where's the pungent shit? Yeah. Because we only got 25 days. If everything is pungent, we're going to have the most immersive, evocative film. And we've just carried that through everything we do. Well, I, we right. I mean, I could see it. You, everyone was sort of sweaty. It was hot. Yeah, and everyone was glistening. You know, yeah. you know, you just like the idea of the sweat and hair products and you know feet. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I mean, and also like the the beach. You know, that whole thing. Yeah. 
But uh, but yeah, but that movie, it, it seems to be, uh, I, I don't know how much you kept from the source material, but it, it does seem to have a lot of your story in it, no? Uh, it's got a lot of my story in it and a lot of the playwrights, Ro McCraney's story. Do you know it. that guy? Uh, I know him now. Yeah. You know, I didn't know him then, mm. and I should have. We grew up blocks from each other. Really? And went to some of the same schools. Uh, I'm a year older than him, uh-huh. although I look eight years older than him because he's, uh, he's just one of those people. Oh, yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, our lives, both our moms went through the same thing, you know. Which 19- was what? Uh, an addiction to crack cocaine. Yeah. You know, the 1980s in Miami was just, yeah, it was, huh? yeah, it was, uh, it was a rough time, man. It was a rough time. And it was a rough time in the deindustrialization of, uh, of working class jobs in Miami at this time. Yeah. And just the infestation of narcotics, yeah. of very cheap narcotics yeah. uh, at this time. It just created this very predatory environment. Yeah. And, uh, and both my mom and his mom fell prey mm. to those things. So, so I knew that story. Yeah. It was one of those things, Marcus. I'm glad you brought him up because I think he created this opening for me to go into my gut uh, with my art. Because I would have never, I was too afraid to touch that story. I didn't want to go huh. to that place with myself. And I thought, I kind of, you know, he kind of played a trick on me. I thought, oh, this shit's about him. This is right. not about me. Yeah. But then you get there and, you know, because the resources are so limited, you start to rely on your instinct. And in doing that, you're very readily just revealing more and more about yourself. And so, yeah, the movie's very, you know, it's kind of lovely that both of us could get, could work through so many of these things about our very personal lives in this very public way that when people engage that film to this day, to yeah. this day, day you know i'm 41 hopefully i'll still be doing this when i'm 61 yeah but i'm probably not going to touch anyone as viscerally as i did with that film oh yeah like what in 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 the sense of who do you find it resonates with oh my every there is no it crosses it crosses all demographics bro yeah i have had 60 year old white men cry in my arms (laughs) literally cry in my arms after screenings of this film and of course, there are young black kids who are trying to to voice who they are, who see this film. And yeah. some of them tell me, you know, this film this film saved my life. Some of them tell me this film made me want to be a filmmaker, so I could tell my story. Right. And it's like I remember watching things by people I admire and going, "Your film made me want to be a filmmaker, so I can tell my story." Like who? Oh, Claire Denis, Warren Carwise, Spike Lee, Lynn Ramsey. Yeah. I mean, so many of, uh, of, of these really wonderful people that I discovered uh, in film school uh-huh. um, because they were just very passionately reflecting their lives, you know, through this visual imagery. And I thought Lynn Ramsey especially um, is someone I actually got to meet yeah. when I first went to film school. She had this movie called Ratcatcher, which is about these kids growing up in, um, in this, uh, this ghetto uh, in in Scotland, and it's this place where there's like a trash strike. So there's just there's just shit everywhere. Mm. It reminds me of this James Baldwin quote from If Bill Street Could Talk, where he says, "You know, uh, the kids have been told that they weren't worth shit, and everything around them proved it." You yeah, know, that right. is Ratcatcher in a nutshell, the right. environment. Yeah, yeah. And so I go to this film festival, and this woman's there, and she, her second film, Morvan Callow, is at the fest, and I spoke to her, and she spoke to me. Yeah. Mark, (laughs) she spoke to me. I would ask her a question. She would ask me a question. I mean, there were 50 of us in the classroom. So all of us kids, we would speak to her. She she would speak back. And it was clear, here is someone from a place like me who was working at a level so far beyond me. And yet everything about her is is saying to me, you and me, we're the same. And Mm. we do the same thing. 
I just happen to be here and you just happen to be there right now, but there's no reason you can't sit in this chair. Right. And it was just so, that shit was affirming, bro. Yeah, life-changing. It was affirming. And, yeah. and I've gone out and done Q&As for Moonlight, especially when it was out in yeah. release. And I could see, I could see young people having that same experience with me. Well, I mean, you know, the, the thing that you're able to do, and I, I, I said this to, to Liesl Tommy yesterday, because, mm-hmm. you know, she did Respect, and I was in that film. And, you know, I see how she's shooting. And I said, I said to her, I brought you up and, and how you shoot the black body mm. on film. Like, and I'm like, n- nobody seems to do it like that. That there's some sort of, it's not even saturated. I don't know what it is. It's an attention paid. Mm-hmm. I don't know what lens you're using or why, uh, but it, the effect of it is amazing. And also, the you choose to hold, you spend time. Yeah. You know, I, I think I think it's an attention paid for sure. And, and I think that, you know, I'm, a, I'm amongst a group uh, of, of peers who are working in this way right now. Um, it's just for whatever reason, you know, my work has landed in the center of yeah. cer- certain spaces and, and uh, some of these other folks uh, are still doing work that is every bit, you know, probably, in my opinion, uh, even stronger. Oh, uh, but maybe they're fine. There's this guy named Khalil Joseph yeah. who's really amazing. He's, he's more a fine artist. Yeah. Yeah, he does these music videos and he uh-huh. and he does these installation pieces that play at museums that screen at these very big uh, big art festivals. He's absolutely wonderful. And then Bradford Young, the cinematographer, who films primarily for Ava DuVernay, um, but does uh, but does other people's work as well. He shot was nominated for Arrival. Amazing, amazing. We're all sort of in the same age. There's some group painters and, too. Oh my God, Carrie James Marshall exactly is uh, is 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 kind of like the 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 the, the be all end all uh, in my opinion. Sort of like a, 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 a an inspiration of magical realism. Exactly, uh-huh. exactly. But but very grounded. You know, right. the, the thing with, uh, with Mr. Marshall that's really cool that I discovered, because um, you were saying, you know, is it a lens? Is it a this? Yeah. What's really cool right now is myself and my cinematographer and our color correction guy, Alex Bickle, you know, we can sit down and we know all the actors who are in the cast. Uh-huh. And right away, you know, Bickle is creating these film stocks. He's creating these film stocks yeah. as we're filming, huh. knowing the cast and knowing how we want to re- represent the skin and the final product. And everything we're doing is is kind of like, it's like subduing the camera, subduing the lens so that it is prioritizing um, this flesh. And so, yeah, to a certain degree, it is very, uh, very orchestrated. But Carrie James Marshall, I remember reading that in in building the paints that he the the colors that he paints with, yeah, he's combining all these pigments, you know, and so it's not just black, you know, it's this black that is very very concentrated, you know, in this spectrum or that spectrum, yeah, just a really lovely way um, of working. But yeah, man, it's kind of cool. The the the, the uh, it's it's not something that I think about intellectually, but yeah. I'm thinking of this moment in the show. Um, where it's it's a it's a blinking you miss it kind of moment, but mm. in the first Indiana episode, you know we we go away from the two main characters, and there's this woman just walking down the the side of the grass, and she she approaches this poet, and yeah. they have this very this very sexy conversation. She says, um, um, you, "You speak some 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 pretty fine words. Yeah. If I gave you my sorrows, would you make them sound pretty?" Yeah, um, and that's not in the script. <laughs> it's not in the script, Mark. <laughs> I just had these two actors who were just both. They had that chem- was the proposal. It was the proposal exactly. Right. They had chemistry. They were just uh, it was just something very, very beautifully just like 
black and sensual and seductive about them. And I thought, I have got to do something with that. <laughs> now, I'm making a show. i got 116 days. Yeah. I ain't got a lot of time to do something with that. Right. And so what can I do? Well, I have a, I have a camera. I have an amazing operator, this guy. Jared Morgan, a.k.a. The Possum. I nicknamed him The Possum because he could worm his way in all these places. Yeah. And I just said to him, she's going to walk down there, and they're going to have the loveliest, the hottest conversation about words. Yeah. And he's going to get on his knee, and you just got to drift down there, and you be the third party. Yeah. And we did it. <laughs> and we just, it was just something off on the side that we did. And, and when I watched the show, I'm so glad that moment's in there because here we have the story. Going back to the top of our he's conversation. He's a minister, right? He's uh the, the guy. He's kind of a minister. Order. He's a poet kind of yeah, thing. Okay, okay. Yeah, he he goes around running his mouth, yeah, uh, right, uh, right. preaching and speaking. Right. Uh, like she says, he has mighty fine words. Right. Um, so what were you saying at the top of the conversation? Uh, at the top of the yeah. conversation, we were talking about how you know it's relentless mm. and it's very dark and it's, it's still with all these very heavy things. But there's a balance. There's now, a tenderness. Always, always. Because that moment is so unspeakable. Unspeakably tender. And here's the important thing about telling a story set in this time. Yeah. These tender moments, they also happened. They had to have. That, that, yeah. There's just no way I would be sitting here talking to you. But if that they was didn't. the human spirit. That was the thing that elevated it. Mm-hmm. That, like, you know, you, because you ask yourself, and I imagine you did as well, how the fuck did we survive this shit? How do we keep going in the face of this? And it's so easy and almost hackneyed to, to, to sort of hang it on Jesus or community. But, yeah. You know, I'll, I'll admit to you, yeah. I, I did ask that question because I, not that I betrayed myself, uh-huh. but I'm, I'm very, I'm very adamant about you know the director being sort of the compass um, mm-hmm. on set, and on this one, I was like, I got to be strong, I yeah. got to be strong for right. everybody, and uh, the, I, I never leave a set. You know, I'm always there. Yeah. I just, I just don't leave, no matter how hot it is, and it was hot as hell on some of these days, or yeah. how cold it was cold as hell some of these days. I'm not gonna go sit on the heater. I'm gonna be on set. When we did the sequence where uh, the character Big Anthony is is burned alive. Oh my god! Now there's no there's no fire. Yeah. You know, there's no fire. Yeah. But the whip is not real. Yeah. You know, there's the guy is on a harness. Yeah. And yet it still felt so damn real. So much so that even though the background are there, and this is true, these spectacles, they weren't just for spectacle's sake. People were forced to watch. You know, as a show of this will happen to you. Sure. It was a way of, of uh, inducing control, of preserving the sort of hierarchy. And so uh, the backgrounds are there. They're watching this thing. We're doing it. Even though there's no fire, there's no blood, none of that, all those visual effects, I walked off. You know, we, 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 we were just about to finish the scene. I was deciding to do another take, and I was sitting there, and I just, I just broke, man. I started crying. I was like, you know what? I can't, I can't, I can't have the crew see if you cry. And so I walked off um, my own set, and, and I, I was just walking. I don't know where I went. I just started walking, yeah. and I realized, oh, fuck. My ancestors couldn't walk off this set. Yeah. They couldn't. Yeah. They couldn't. Right. I had to go back. <laughs> and, so, and so I took myself back. Yeah. Thankfully, you know, I work with all my friends. And so when I got back, cinematographer James Laxton, my best friend, I've known this guy for 20 years. Yeah. He's already, he's got us moving on to the next thing. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and I think he knew, because he's never seen me done that. He knew, oh, shit, he needs a moment. <laughs> and you know what? He's allowed this moment. Right. And we'll keep the machine going. Yeah. And then he'll he'll come back and slip right in. And, and I did. But, uh, but in that moment, I felt this guilt because no one I'm depicting had the luxury, had the privilege, had the ability to do this, to extricate themselves from this moment. And so, yeah, when people say, oh, I, I couldn't get through the first episode or I couldn't get to the second episode, 
you know, I wish my ancestors had that luxury. Well, I, but I think that, like, it, you know, it, it's 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 short sighted and and it's reactive. And uh, the the truth is, is I think what you've created here in in terms of, and also it's that sort of strange improvisational adventure that you got hung up on there with the poet and the words is that you know you're really working within poetry here right mm. so you know the balance that we keep talking about is that the language of the human heart and human tenderness and some sort of strange innate compassion mm. that seems to be real mm. that we we lose touch of every day because of what we do to our heads is really the through line of this thing it's not the violence. Yeah, yeah, I I agree. And even even when those things are, are misused, you know, the other moment of improvisation that I'm really proud of is in that Tennessee episode. I've talked about this a bit in the press. Yeah, the conversation that Joel uh, and Chase, that Ridgeway and Homer have by by the lake, um, that that's improvised as well. It's not planned. After the 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 the, the enslaved man Jas- Jasper escapes in the Yellow Fever camp, yeah, he's kneeling before the cross. Ridgeway finds him. And he's yeah. like, no time for that. And in the very next scene, the little boy Homer's just standing by a lake, and Ridgeway walks up to him and he hands him these keys, and he oh, says these right. words to him. He says, um, "You know, it's just you and me." And then he goes in this mantra: "You have to be strong like me. You have to be watchful like me." And then he says, "You have to take pride in your work, because so much of uh, the indoctrinization of American exceptionalism, so much of the indoctrinization of all these things we're hearing, you yeah. know, this idea of making America yeah. great again." You know, it's about this pride. It's so much about, I don't want to be ashamed of my this. I don't want to be ashamed of my that. It's so much about this pride, these mantras, this repetition. And I thought, I'm still struggling to understand what this relationship between this man and this boy is. But I kind of know something about it when I see it. It's grooming. It's indoctrinization. It's Mm. manipulation. It's seduction. And so I thought, like me, like me, I just want these words. And so as we were filming on that day, I went to the bathroom when I came out, I texted Joel a few lines, and I said, I'm not going to tell Chase what we're doing, but if we get ahead on the day, there's going to be this beautiful Chase light. is the little kid? Chase is the little kid. How Homer. old is that kid? He was 10 when we filmed. He's probably uh, 11 and a half, 12 Because he, he, he seemed, uh, it was an interesting, that character, was that in the book? That was in the book, yeah. Because, like, you know, it, it's weird when you, when you think about, you know, how the idea of, uh, of, of toming comes around. Mm-hmm. is created mm-hmm. and and then you sort of th- see this little guy dressed up like that and you start thinking Tom Thumb mm-hmm. right and he, like mm-hmm. then cuz he was really a little man mm-hmm. and he seemed to represent something very insidious very insidious and also too uh there I sometimes wonder how certain people again come to be the way they are and I yeah. think going back to childhood um is always uh I think a really important not the only way but a really important way to excavate some of those things. Yeah. So yeah, the characters in the book, I was very afraid of this character. You know, I think it's a, it's a, it's a very difficult thing to have a child do, a child actor. Um, some of the things that this character does in the show. Yeah. Um, and also too, you have to be very aware. What am I communicating? Um, because you know, I don't want anyone to hate this child. To hate this child, the child playing the, and, uh, the, and, the well, character. You know what the weird fucking thing was? Is that I think the most, the the most endearing and strangely empathetic moment that you have with that kid is when he he handcuffs himself to sleep. Mm, that's in the book. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean, though? I do know what you mean. It's when I when I got to that moment in the book, I was like, fuck. Yeah. 
I mean, it says it says everything uh, without without verbally saying anything. Yeah, but it says everything. Well, he becomes sort of this mythological character. Mm-hmm. Like you, you know, there you can't you don't look at him totally as a child until because like usually with a character like that, you, you need them to break, and when he does, mm-hmm. it's because his master mm-hmm. is is gone. Mm-hmm. And then you then the, again that there that character deserves empathy mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because he has a future that's different now uh that's very different although i, I joke about that kid's gonna be just fine <laughs> he's gonna climb up out of there and he's gonna he'll figure it he, out he's gonna worm his way into some other some other person's heart that, that kid's gonna be just but, fine but he does seem to be symbolic after a certain point i don't look at him as i didn't look at his humanity as much as what he represented yeah i i agree and that's the place where where i landed with him Mm. you know the thing is uh you know joel's such a great actor and joel and chase um you know had such a wonderful way of working together and when you're dealing with a child actor the adult in the scene with the child is helping you um uh direct direct that person and so you know credit to joel um for all the wonderful work chase does in the show um, and yet it was clear to me, you know, once I started badgering Colson, the author, that, yeah, he is a symbol of, of, of certain things. Um, if I ever got to the bottom of, of what, what he symbolizes, I'm yeah. not sure, you know. Sure. Well, I mean, now, just the evolution from uh, if Beale Street could talk towards, you know, accepting and challenging yourself with the awesome responsibility, mm-hmm. which I have to assume you saw uh, Underground Railroad as being. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, did did the experience of working with, with Baldwin's texts specifically and, and honestly in Beale Street sort of uh, awaken your uh, ability to, to sort of take on that responsibility? Uh, it did. It yeah. did. And, but, in, but not in the way I expected. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because Mr. Baldwin is no longer with us, you know, I couldn't call him as right. a resource to ask him, is it okay if I do this? What do you think if I do that? I just decided to ver- to hew very close to the text with the exception of the ending. And it wasn't until way deep in the process, and I'm sure yeah. you've been through this, through testing this and testing that, that I realized, oh shit, I, I have to take the ending. Like I-, I now, I can't hide behind the text. I have to take it. What was the ending? Uh, the ending in the book is brutal. Mm. It's brutal. Um, the the uh, Fonny's Fonny's ma- her mom mm. her mom comes home and basically tells her that Fonny's dad has killed himself, and that induces her to go into labor, and it's implied that Fonny just stays and rots in prison. And I thought I can't end this film, and I filmed it that way. I can't have this film end on this child coming into the world with the father who's essentially lost and a grandfather who's essentially, who's lost, who's literally right. lost as well. Yeah. And so I went in and tried to have, again, fact. Now I'm thinking of this book as, as fiction, but if you say the translation, yeah. this is what actually happens in the book. But what's the truth of what happens in the book? What's the feeling I can arrive at that I think still speaks to what Mr. Baldwin intended, but was the ending that I felt like represented what I want to say with the book. And so I came up with this alternate version. Um, yeah, and it's, it's, it's not like it's a happy ending. It's not a happy ending, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's not you, a happy ending. You didn't sell it out. No, I, I didn't sell it out, but but I did have to have to take possession but of that, it. Right, because, because really as you're saying it, you know, as you speak it, because I, I didn't read the book, mm-hmm. that it's clear that 
that Baldwin was was doing that for a, a, a effect. He was pissed. Yes. So he was pissed. so what you did was you know just shave off mm-hmm. the the sort of self inflicted violence and the violence of 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 faith or whatever. Exactly. And and you you made it an intimate reality mm-hmm. of what probably would have happened. Mm-hmm. And so then moving into Underground Railroad, because Colson was there, I decided right away that the text is the text and the show is the show. Mm. You know, especially working with a group of writers, we had a writer's room of, uh, of really wonderful people, a very small one. You know, where where do we see ourselves in this book? You know, and where where is the edge of the book, but we feel like the edge of the show can be here. And so the young girl who's in the attic with her in North Carolina wow. is not in the book at all. Mm. Um, she goes in the attic and she's in the attic by herself for like 80 pages and I thought oh I can't have the audience sitting in here yeah. uh, with this woman for, for 60 minutes and yeah. she has no one to talk to but also too it was a great a great moment I thought Colson created a great window so much of this is about this woman maybe coming to terms or, or finding some way to understand the sacrifice her mother had to make so oh she's in this environment now she has to mother mm. so that's why we decided to put the little girl in the attic with her once we did I also realized oh shit I can't leave that girl behind you know I don't want that on my consciousness I don't want it on the audience yeah I didn't know I, I, I was like you know I, I mean and then you kind of you go back to this weird you know like like after you do leave her behind mm-hmm. and you know you, what did you give us like 15 minutes yeah, yeah. and then all of a sudden it's like oh shit Back, back door, <laughs> <laughs> which which and, and and everything about that episode is filmed in a way. That's that's is your it? idea of giving us a break. She gets dragged. Out. I know, I know, but it's good. It's good. It, it worked. Would, would you have rather? Did. Would you rather seen it and assume that little girl burned to the ground? Well, I just didn't, I didn't know how much car it could take. <laughs> True. Do you know? True. I mean, like that's a, that, that's a moment where you're like, you know, how do how does the spirit survive this? Mm. Mm. Right? Mm. And she doesn't know that that kid lived. She doesn't. No. And she, she just had to take like the what was go the way that that actress played that, you know, where you know where you start to realize the 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 burden of 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 inexplicable uh violence ongoing to mm-hmm. self and others and, and and no way to get out of it that you know what does that do to the heart, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of there's no way to even process that grief. So, like, but somehow or another, the Atrix, uh, you know, made it work. I mean, there's no way to process that grief, but when you really sort of, like, map out what you're seeing, mm. you know, this is the generation of women that give birth to the women who give birth to MLK. Yeah. You know, who sure. who create this movement that opens to Malcolm X, that creates this, this movement, this environment to W.B. Du Bois. This is literally the generation of women that give birth to W.B. Du Bois that open this movement that does create, to some degree, a more perfect union. Yes. To some degree. Because you, you go from 1865 to 1965, and 1965 is fucking huge for the complexion of this country. It's not just the civil rights of black folks. It's also the Immigration Act, you know, that, that, that brings all folks, mm-hmm. opens all these opportunities. It has this ricochet effect over the whole world. And the women who gave birth that generation, this is what they had to go through. Well, I started to feel Regularly. That. Yeah, I felt that. I felt like, you know, like when you see in it, that generation, it's probably mostly gone. Mm-hmm. 
But you know, there were suggestions in you know in some of the later episodes when you know when she arrives in the city, and I can't I can't remember exactly what it was where you realize like you don't know, you know, until you sit down with uh, like a, a, an old woman. Mm-hmm. You know, who had like it's like it's also in the same sense of of Holocaust survivors, mm-hmm. right? That you know, like it's something that the 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 survival um, drive doesn't really have time for grief. It doesn't. No, it doesn't. Right. It, it, it doesn't because if if it is unfortunate because you know uh, these these psychological effects that we know so much about now we don't know everything about them. Sure. Oh my God, they must have been just like over overrun. You know, oh, you mean with PTSD? Exactly, yeah, right. PTSD. So much, so much psychological trauma. Um, working almost in a trance. Exactly, working right. almost in a trance. Right. Living almost in a trance. Right. Dying in a trance. Yes, um, undoubtedly. And so you're right. And I think one of the things that's really lovely about Tussauds' performance, who plays Cora, is you can feel her. She's leaving all these people behind, but she's not leaving them behind. Right. That's why these faces recur so much throughout the show. They yeah. just keep recurring. Just keep recurring. Yeah. She's carrying these people with her. And how does that manifest itself? She falls down the ladder. Ridgeway's lying on his back. She gets on the handcart. She could go, but not going not gonna to repeat. I'm, I'm going to close the circle, the cycle of abandonment. Right. And she goes back. She grabs that girl. Doesn't doesn't happen in the book. She goes back and she grabs that girl. Um, and, and she takes care of business. And she takes care of business, which also is not in the book. <laughs> yeah, but that was. But you know, the weird thing is, it doesn't read as as justice. Mm-hmm. It it reads as this has to stop. It, it, it is. This has to stop. And and I remember we were doing these portraits we cut to, you uh-huh. know, as she's walking, and we just started doing those. Mark, we were making the show, and I looked over at the background actors one day, and I was like, "Fuck, they look." Amazing is not even the right word. I look at them and I feel things. We just have to pause what we're doing and capture this. And as we started filming them... Oh, when they're all standing still? When they're all just standing still. We call them these portraits. I remember saying to James, the cinematographer, I was like, you know what? She's going to get off that handcart. She's going to grab that gun. She's going to be walking towards him. And we're going to see all these faces. And then she's going to stand over him. And we're going to see all these faces. He's going to be running fucking mouth yeah and we're gonna see all these faces now what i didn't plan what i could never plan is she pops him and Tuso, oh, this young woman she's so amazing yeah. she cries I, I it's not scripted it, whatever emotion that came out of her it's what came out of her and every take she would stand over him and shoot him you know we had these quarter loads and then these tears would come and I was like, yo, I, I, I didn't expect you to release that. I knew you'd release something. Yeah. You know, I didn't expect her to jump in the air and whoop and right, holler right, high right. five. But I didn't expect that. That shit's real, bro. Every single take. Huh. And it's right because it's that, it's like all the grief you were talking yeah. about, all these things she's carrying, all these people, some, it's just got to stop. Yeah. And when it stops, it doesn't take the pain away. Right. right. It doesn't take the pain away. I think yeah. that's why she releases that emotion she releases that tear yeah but it does stop this thing mm-hmm. and the journey goes on right um yeah it's, it's really i mean making the show was ooh, it was, it was hellified how like. how is it like you you seem to feel and i think rightfully so that you know you you did a great job i'm i'm, ha- I'm happy with the show yeah, yeah i'm because i feel it i think it's a, it definitely has a, a masterpiece feel and it's and it's thorough and it's affecting and you know it, it is of its own mm-hmm. what how is it being received? I have no idea. 
Uh, I have no idea either. Critically, I mean, it did great. Um, by the way, I think thorough is the right word. I do feel like it's a, it's a thorough piece of work. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes you go to work and you're like, oh, did I do my best today? I think I did the best I could. Yeah. You know, and, and that, that, whenever I have that feeling, I feel really good. You know, Moonlight, I felt I did the best I could. I think Bill Street, I could have done a little better. Mm. Uh, this one, I did the best I could. And it's just big. Yeah, and it is big. <laughs> That's just me, my own personal opinion That's of it. That's great. Um, you know, I, I wish more people were watching it. I wish more people were, were talking about it. Well, are you, what, did, do you sense, how has it landed in the black community? Do you have any sense? Uh, it's interesting because right now we can't physically go to, to any community. I miss being able to go to Q&As. You know, I would have loved to have gone to Chicago, Atlanta, Detroit, yeah. you know, sat in an auditorium yeah. and talked to people about the show. Uh, what I get incoming on social media mm-hmm. uh, is very positive. Before the show came out, what I got incoming on social media was very negative. People just reject these imageries um, sight unseen. People just don't want to be reminded of the grief that you and I have been yeah, talking about, right. you know, of the weight. People are ashamed and seeing these images of degradation and, and subjugation. Um, so much so that they don't, they don't even want to wade through those images to get to images oh, yeah. of hope, images yeah. of tenderness. Right. Um, one of the things that was really, really just like, just shocking for me personally, yeah. making the show. It was a real. It was something I knew, but it's one thing to know something and to feel it. Yeah. Um, which was we had a, a guidance counselor for the run of show. We had a therapist who was always on set. A woman who one day pulled me off my own yeah. set because she felt like she could see that I was carrying too much of the trauma of the show and not processing it. Pulled me off my own set, Mark. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, pulled me off set. Because uh, we empowered her. We said this, yes, the director says action, says cut. Uh, this woman, Miss Kim, Kim White, Yeah. Um, she supersedes me. If she sees that you um, cannot do what you need to do or that you need to process something, she can stop everything. Yeah, one day wow. She, one day she pulled me off my own set, man. Um, but um, what'd she say? Uh, she said, uh, "She said, are you okay?" I said, "Yeah, I'm fine." She said, "No, you're not fine. You're not okay. What's going on?" I go, ah, "You know, it was near the end of filming yeah. uh, the first chapter, Georgia. We filmed the first and last chapter, Georgia and Mabel back to back because they're in the same yeah. locations. So I was carrying all that around, right? And I was saying to her, uh, "Yeah, you know, I'm good." She goes, no, you're not good. I know, I know. I said, I know. I'll deal with it this weekend. You know, I can't let the crew, <laughs> yeah, right. you know, see me not not keep it together. Yeah. She goes, yeah, you're trying to keep it together for the crew, but who's going to direct the show yeah. when you can't keep it together uh, for you? Yeah. And so we sat down, and this is like, you know, 10 p.m. at night on a split. And yeah. so we're like, time is right. time. Is time. Yeah. Um, but uh, she would not let me go back until I talked what, to did her. Did you release? Uh, I did release. I did. I did. It was, um, there was the day before there was an actor who does something that's not even violent. Yeah. I mean, the very first episode when, um, the, 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 the owner of the plantation, uh, brings the kid over to read the declaration of independence. There's this one enslaved man, prideful who grabs the kid and says, here, this boy can do it. You know, he's with Michael. He pushes him into the center. Um, it just unlocked something in the actor who had to grab the little boy. Yeah. And he just, uh, he had a hard time with it. And so she went and talked to him uh-huh. and seeing how, and this is a really gregarious guy, seeing how affected he was by this thing. It wasn't even, it wasn't that he was whipping someone, yeah. but psychologically he had placed this child in harm's way 
and he he had a he had a hard time separating himself from that. Yeah. And I just realized, you know, I just had this thought. It's like, you know, am I doing the right thing oh, yeah. by bringing all these people into the story? And you know, we talked, and you know, what she had to say was very smart. And and she one she had already talked to him yeah and it and it served her function she had done what she was there to do because we paused when 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 i saw him do that that he was losing it i said to her you need to go talk to him and so we paused on that day yeah and then on this day because i had then it's it's weird when you're doing these things it's like spiritual transference Mm. especially when you're all in it together Mm -hmm. you know it affects one it affects us all yeah and yet I was having, I had this person there who was really wonderful and there to make sure we could all release. Yeah. I wasn't releasing. Yeah. I wasn't releasing the damn thing. And so, yeah, she uh, she pulled me to the side, bro. Pulled me to the side. And uh, and we got through it. That's and, great. And, and then we kept it moving. I, 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 you know, it's, whose decision was it to hire that person? You know, I will, this is where I will give the studio credit. I will give the studio credit. <laughs> From the very first meeting, because yeah. stu- I knew we were going to have an intimacy coordinator. Right. But this was something even uh, even above that. Yeah. The studio said, yeah, we're going to have to have a therapist on set at like all a, times. Like a, a trauma counselor Literally. or something. Yeah. Well, well to, to soften it, with the, with her technical term was a guidance counselor. Uh-huh. But she's a licensed clinician. And, right. uh, and And yeah, she helped a lot of people get through some things. Wow. So heavily used. Oh, uh, you know what? Isn't heavily used in the beginning. This I'll come back to the the yeah. answer I was going to give about shame. Heavily used in the beginning. As we got further and further into it, um, less and less, um, especially amongst the uh, the the black actors and the crew. Because yeah. we were you were you were teeing up this this idea of shame. Uh, you were saying what has been the response in the community, and yeah. you were saying how there are certain people who rejected the show sight unseen because mm-hmm. they don't want to deal. With this trauma, it, it elicits these feelings of shame. Yeah. And in making the show, in the beginning, yeah. I would see Miss White go over and she would talk and she would be talking to the black cast who were embodying the enslaved. And then as we kept going and kept going and yeah. kept going, I would see less of that and I would see more um, some of the white crew going over oh, to really? grab Miss White. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that was very clear, not everything we did. Um, was was shameful because there there was some very tender moments in the show. Yeah, there were some very empowering moments in the show. Right, but when the shame did reveal itself, it was very clear. I'm speaking as a black person now. The shame is not ours. Yeah, and that was something that that became very very clear to me. Um, not I knew that intellectually, but to to feel it, um, I think was a was a very interesting thing. Wow, and that it took a minute. It took a minute. Yeah. Yeah. It took a minute because we just, we hide these images. Uh-huh. You know, it's even in scouting the show, the plantation houses exist. Right. On the same properties, the slave quarters have been erased. And so we built them from scratch. And when you build these things, and Mark Freebird, our production designer, did a really wonderful job. When you step into them and you see them, there are 12 people living in a shack. Yeah. Who, how, what human being would subject another human being to this? Well, it, it, that was the other thing, and I'm sure it's in the book, the, the, the constant referral to it. Yes. Not he or she. Yes, th- that was in the book. We actually dialed it back a, a, a little bit. And some of the things in the Georgia chapter in the book, you know, and Coles is not lying about anything. You yeah. know, it's all rooted yeah. in truth. Um, but yeah, the uh, you know, again, he won a Pulitzer for the book. Um, and Joel did a great job turning that phrase. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I I mean, the, the whole thing was amazing. It had a profound effect on me and it was a, a, a pleasure talking to you. 
Thank you, bro. Pleasure's all mine. Yeah, man. Did, did you did you do the, the whole intro with the what the fuck guys, what the fuck girls? No, that's later. <laughs> I'll do that before. Like I, I do these separate, and then I'll do that later, so I can you know uh, figure out how to set you up. Thank you, man. I appreciate yeah, it. Man. It was great talking to you. Thank you, man. There you go. Watch it if you can handle it. You should take it on. Underground Railroad is now streaming on Amazon Prime Video. That was Barry Jenkins. If you're just checking in, as if there were, like this is a radio show. If you only caught half of that, that was Barry Jenkins, uh, the director of Underground Railroad. Okay, okay. Let's play. Let's lay it out. Let's do some bouncy, ethereal guitar notes. <laughs> Cat Angels everywhere. <laughs>